Well, today we are continuing to look at the Lord's Prayer. And I know Keith read this great passage from Matthew chapter 6, which is a little further on from the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we want to again have that serve as our background as Jesus talks about the need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to us. And that's a great thing to keep in mind as we come to the Lord's Prayer. But we're learning a number of things about the Lord's Prayer. We're learning that it's a kind of signature prayer for the followers of Jesus. When the disciples came and asked Jesus, teach us to pray, they said, teach us to pray just like John has taught his disciples to pray. By the prayer you prayed, you identified with a particular rabbi or teacher. And so people would know that the disciples had been with Jesus because of this prayer. This is the prayer he taught them. This would be their signature prayer. When we have day camp, and I hope we have day camp this summer again, we get everyone that works with day camp to wear a signature t-shirt. I was actually wearing my old day camp t-shirt yesterday. Roar, it says across it. Some of you remember it. And it sets us apart. It shows who we belong to, that we're part of the team. Uh, well, Jesus didn't hand out t-shirts, but he get, taught them a prayer. And that's what this prayer does. It's an identifying marker, and it still is today. One of the reasons that we taught our kids to pray the Lord's Prayer very early on when they were young is so that no matter where they go around the world, no matter what congregation they go into, there's an identifying marker in we know this prayer together, the Lord's Prayer. So that's part of the Lord's Prayer and its beauty for us today. The second thing is it's also a reflection and a summary of the work of Jesus. And that's a part that we often don't think about that the Lord's Prayer actually summarizes the priorities that Jesus gave to his work. He had a priority to glorify the name of his Father. He had a priority to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he had a priority to do the will of his Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So as we look through the Lord's Prayer, we also see the work of Jesus. And that can be a great summary. And then thirdly, it also establishes for us our priorities in prayer. I don't know during this pandemic season if you just wonder, Lord, how am I supposed to pray? Or if you go through a particular trial or an illness or something happens, and we say, Lord, how am I supposed to pray? Well, here it is. Pray that God's name would be glorified during this pandemic. Are we praying that? Pray that the kingdom of God might be proclaimed. Pray that the will of the Father would be done. Not our will, not our timing, not our wants and desires necessarily, but that God's will will be done. And those are the kind of things that we can pray for. No matter what, if we're facing great times, pray these things. If we're facing hard times, pray these things. This is how we align ourselves with the will of God the Father. So we looked last week at the first three requests. There's kind of six great requests in this prayer, in the first three, uh, they go around the word your, right? Your name, your kingdom, your will. Now in the second half, we look to the words us and our. Give us, forgive us, deliver us. And this is a kind of a focus now for these last three requests. So what are we asking for when we say these things? Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins and deliver us from the evil one. What are we actually asking for? And this is something we're going to think through today. First of all, daily bread. You can get it from Cobb's, right? 
They even have leftovers that we sometimes take up to the mustard seed. It's, it's kind of a loaded phrase for us, daily bread. It's a loaded phrase because some people are immediately thinking, is it gluten-free? You know, we, we wonder and we struggle with bread in today's uh, society for all different kinds of reasons. Some of us avoid bread or should probably avoid bread altogether. Uh, but there's different reasons why we struggle with this image just a little bit. Um, when I have turkey dinner at Thanksgiving, I, this is a pro tip, by the way, avoid the buns. They're, they're, they fill up your space and you could fill that with other more valuable assets as you come to Thanksgiving dinner. But when it comes to bread in the New Testament and talking to the disciples, bread wasn't a side dish. It wasn't a basket that was optional. Bread was part of the main supper, not because it was the main course, but because it was the utensil. You broke off a piece of bread and you dipped it in the dish. That's what you needed. And I love this idea that bread is kind of the utensil of God's grace. When we celebrate communion, and we're going to start again next month, when we celebrate communion, we take the bread. It's kind of like this utensil of God's grace is what I think about when I'm taking the bread. And so bread was absolutely core. It was part of the essential of every meal. You wouldn't have a meal without it. That was the kind of bread. Now, when we talk about bread in the Jewish context, when the disciples heard, give us today our daily bread, I'm sure their mind went to all different kinds of places. As soon as you mention bread in this context, you think of manna in the Old Testament. Remember the manna that came from heaven that fed the Israelites in the desert? It was only good for one day, no refrigeration. It couldn't be stored. You had to eat it the day and then collect more for the next day. And there's a sense in which this is talking about our daily bread as well. Or they would often talk about eating bread in the kingdom of heaven. That was the disciples' great hope, is that they would get to eat bread together with Jesus in the new kingdom of heaven. They were excited about that. Maybe that's where their mind went. For those of us who are believers in Christ, when we do celebrate the Lord's Supper, we think of breaking bread together. So there's lots of directions we could go in this. And I hope you explore this idea what does it mean to pray, give us today our daily bread? But what if, what if it's just about daily bread? <laughs> what if it's as simple as just asking God for our basic needs? What is, if it's as simple as that? Just saying, Lord, give us what I need for today. Remember the time when we used to make plans? <laughs> when we used to say, uh, what's your five-year plan? Where do you see yourself in five years? And increasingly, people are saying, I don't know where I see myself tomorrow. Just, just give me what I need for today, God. If I can get through today, then, then please give me what I need for tomorrow and the next day and a day at a time. And that's partly what this kind of prayer teaches us. It shows that God values walking with us in real time, day by day, step by step. One of the unique things about this phrase, give us today our daily bread, is that word daily is absolutely unique in the Greek language. The word is epiousios, and I never pronounce Greek right, but that's the word. And it only occurs here in the entire Greek New Testament. In fact, it only occurs here in the entirety of Greek literature. Think about that. The Greeks wrote a lot of stuff, and no one has ever found this word in any other part of Greek literature. It's as if Matthew pushed it together, a couple of different words, and so it makes it difficult for us to translate. However, a number of years ago, an archaeologist found some parchments in Egypt, and he found this word 
on that parchment. At least he thought he did, and perhaps he did. It's hard to read it sometimes. But that's what he saw on the parchment. People were really excited. What was this parchment about? Was it a, a king's degree, sort of some law or edict he passed? You know what it was? A shopping list. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. You can look it up later. It was literally a, a woman's shopping list. And on the list, it had something like this word. Uh, we need our daily leeks and onions. I don't know what came after it. It was in Egypt after all. So, but that was the idea. She was shopping for her daily needs. And that's where this word was found. That's the only other place it's found. And I think that's kind of beautiful. That's what we're asking for. We're asking for our daily needs. God, give us what we need for today. Do you pray that prayer? I pray it each and every day during these times. Well, what about those who don't have their daily needs? 957 million people in the world today will not have enough to eat. How do we wrestle with that? How do we, how do we go home and make ourselves whatever we want, almost literally, understanding that so many people worldwide are facing food insecurity on a daily basis? They don't have their daily needs. And this is why it's important to understand that this prayer is not simply, God, give me what I need, but it's actually, God, give us our daily bread. It's, it's the cry of all humanity to God. And when we pray this prayer, we stand in solidarity with those who don't have their daily needs. But we also acknowledge the fact that we can be part of the answer to that prayer. As we pray for our daily needs, we should also be willing to share our bread with others. And that's implicit in what we find not only in this prayer, but throughout the New Testament. So we can be part of the answer. That's true of the entire Lord's Prayer. When we pray, God, make your name holy, then we're expected to live holy lives. When we pray, God, your kingdom come, then we're expected to proclaim the kingdom. When we pray, God, your will be done, then we're expected to do God's will. So then when we pray, God, give us our daily bread, we're expected to share our bread. So this prayer is not just a personal prayer, it's a justice prayer as we stand in solidarity with those who need food. So we pray that. Give us today our daily bread. Well, the second part of the uh, prayer and these uh, petitions is for forgiveness. Just as bread is a basic physical need, we could say that forgiveness is a basic spiritual need, except the Bible doesn't like to divide between the two. I think we like to divide spiritual things here, you know, physical, practical things here, but that's not how the Bible works. And we know that too. We know that is, if someone is suffering physically, if they have a lack of bread, they suffer in their spirit as well. And we know that if we're suffering spiritually, if we have a lack of forgiveness, we also suffer physically. And so it's tied in together. But we do have to talk about forgiveness. And because we talk about forgiveness, we need to talk about sin. There's actually five words for sin in the New Testament. Are you ready? There's going to be a quiz on this after, so... Only Kira is taking notes. <clears throat> She's going to win. The first word is, oh, I see Cindy too. Thanks, Cindy. The first word is hamartia. And hamartia is a very common word. It means missing the mark. It comes from the shooting range. And you miss the target. And uh, the idea, we find it in Romans chapter 3, that we all fall short of the glory of God. That's sin. Sin is also parabasis, which means to step across a line. 
You ever say, you know, buddy, you just, you just crossed the line with that joke. <laughs> that's stepping across the line. That's a kind of, kind of sin as we step across that moral line that divides right from wrong. And sometimes that line seems a little bit fuzzy at times, but we need to know where the line is. Or paraptoma is another word for sin, and it means to slip. You ever slip up in the heat of the moment when you're driving and you curse someone out and you slip up? That's a kind of sin as well. Or there's anomia. Anomia is lawlessness. It's actually to break the law willfully. You know full well what the law is and you choose to break it anyway. That's a kind of sin. But in this passage, in the Lord's Prayer, there's a fifth word. Ophilima. And ophilima means debt. This is a very curious word for Matthew to use as he's talking about sin. It means a failure to pay that which is due, a failure in our duty to one another and to God, that we have a debt. And it has a connotation of being a spiritual thing, but it also has a connotation of being a very physical thing. There's non-material and material debts. If you think back to the Old Testament, there was the season of Jubilee, which I think we should reinstate immediately because in the 50th year, which would have been my year this year, all your debts would be canceled. And so I think that's fantastic. That's a great idea. Let's bring it back right now. No, it was an interesting uh, policy that God instituted that in the year of Jubilee, all the debts would be canceled. And what a freeing thing. This, again, is a justice issue, isn't it? So that people wouldn't be indebted for life. We think of even countries around the world that are indebted to wealthier countries and people who are trapped in cycles of debt. And we know how it erodes not only their physical well-being, but also their ability to connect with God and one another. And so that's partly what this forgiveness is about. It's not only the the non-material things, it's about material things. And this prayer for justice is a prayer for forgiveness. We see this really clearly in Romans chapter 13. Listen to what Paul says. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You see how he switched? From very material things, taxes and revenue. If you owe that, pay it out. But then he switched to non-material, respect and honor. You owe that too, pay that out. Then he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. There's one debt that we leave outstanding. It's our debt, it's our obligation to love one another. Otherwise, we should be people who cancel debts. We should be people that forgive debts. And so there's this connection between monetary and non-monetary debts, which I find fascinating in the Lord's Prayer. But there's also a tougher connection. And it's the connection between receiving forgiveness from God and offering forgiveness to others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I think that's the toughest part of the Lord's Prayer. It's the toughest part for me. There's lots of things we could uh, look into around this, but basically it's saying this. Don't bother asking God for forgiveness if you're unwilling to forgive one another. Don't bother. Because by doing that, you're basically saying, I want the cross for me, but the cross is not for you. I want God's grace for me, 
but I won't extend it to you when we say, God, forgive me, and then we still hold a grudge against our brother and sister. I think this is the hardest part of the Lord's Prayer for me. If you want to read more about that, just read the next few verses after the Lord's Prayer because Matthew goes into it using a different word for sin, but he talks about forgiveness there as well, and it's tough words. God wants us to experience the freedom of forgiving others and also being forgiven. Lewis Meads said this, To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner is you. That's profound. That's why God wants us to forgive one another. Because he wants us to be free. When we hold grudges, what do we do? We, we, we create all kinds of wounds in our minds for someone else, and who are we actually hurting? We're harming ourselves. So that's part of this prayer as well, to forgive others as we receive forgiveness from God. Okay, the third part in this second half of the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for protection. Martin Luther is said to have gone to bed with the fifth petition, which is forgive us, and then to have woken up with the sixth petition, which is deliver us. I think that's a good policy. At the end of the day, as we reflect back on our day, we need to say, God, forgive me. Forgive us. And as we wake up fresh in the morning, we need to say, God, deliver us. Protect us. That's a great habit to, uh, to start and to have. But the word here for do not lead us into temptation, the word temptation is difficult because the word can mean temptation, but it can also mean testing, and those are two very different things. To be tested means to prove our loyalty and to improve our character. That's why God leads us into times of testing, to prove our loyalty and to improve our character. Temptation, on the other hand, is an enticement to sin. James chapter 1 and verse 3 makes it very clear that God doesn't do that with us. God does not, he's not into the habit of entrapment. He's not out there kind of watching for us to try and trap us in a sin so he can beat us over the head and, and cause guilt and shame. If you're feeling a lot of guilt and shame constantly, that is not from God. God is not in the habit. James chapter 1 verse 3 says, God does not tempt anyone. But he does lead us into times of testing. And so I think we're speaking here in the Lord's Prayer about times of testing. But here's the catch. The Lord's Prayer says, do not lead us into testing, but deliver us from the evil one. Because during times of testing and trials, that's when Satan strikes and tries to tempt us to sin. When we're at our weakest, when we're at our most confused, when our, our, our guard is down, that's when we face temptation. So that's part of the Lord's Prayer. God, we don't want to be led into times of testing. But we've seen you work, and so we know we will. But at least keep us from the evil one. Keep us from falling into times of temptation. Think about this for the people of God in the Old Testament. We see a clear picture of when they're led into the wilderness. No one wants to be led into the wilderness. But they're led into the wilderness to show their loyalty to God and to improve their character as a nation. But what happened? During that time of testing, they gave into temptation and they sin. And that's often the pattern that we find ourselves in as well. That's why it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and I'll read this from the message translation. Peter says, keep a cool head, stay alert, 
The devil is poised to pounce and would like nothing better than to catch you napping. That's a great verse to preach at the end of a sermon, right? <laughs> anyway, that's why I kept it till now. The devil would like nothing better than to catch you napping. Keep your guard up. You're not the only ones plunged into these hard times. It's the same with Christians all over the world. So keep a firm grip on the faith. The suffering won't last forever. It won't be long before this generous God who has great plans for us in Christ will have you put together and on your feet for good. He gets the last word. Yes, he does. I love that. I love that translation in the message too. It brings it home. Keep a cool head. Stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce, but God has the last word. And so when we're in times of testing, then we have to keep watch with one another. We have to keep our guard. We have to stay alert. And as the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have to resist. I think we're in an incredible time of testing right now, not only as individuals and as a society, but as churches. This is an incredible time of testing during these pandemic days. And I think the devil watches for these times of weakness and starts to sow all kinds of seeds of disruption, seeds of suspicion. Are they really doing what they said they would do? Seeds of disunity, of slander and of gossip, seeds of envy, seeds of conflict. And while we're in this time of testing, we're tempted to, to let those seeds grow and develop and tear us apart. We start keeping records of wrongs against one another. We start breaking fellowships over non-essential. We refuse to explore reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. And these are all signs and symptoms that we've let the devil in. That we've let the seeds of disruption come in during a time of testing. And we have to be on our guard against it and resist the devil. And he will flee from us. That's the promise. That's what we need to do together during this time. So we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, don't lead us into times of testing, but while we're there, deliver us from the temptations of the evil one. So we have six requests in the Lord's Prayer as we've gone through together. But our petitions to God are also an invitation to participate with God in answering these prayers. And that's part of the beauty of praying the Lord's Prayer. It's not just we, we offer it up to God and walk away. No, as we pray these things, we're also invited by God to participate because these are His priorities for the world. So even as we ask God to make His name holy, so we're called to live holy lives. Even as we ask God to establish His kingdom, we're called to proclaim the kingdom and live it out. Even as we ask God to accomplish His will, so we are to delight in the will of our Father. And same for the second half. Even as we ask for bread, we're called to share our bread with those in need. Even as we ask for forgiveness, we're called to for extend forgiveness to others. And even as we ask for deliverance, so we are to resist and combat the evil that we see in the world around us. So the bottom line is this. Don't ask if we're not prepared to take action. Don't ask if we're not to be prepared to be part of the solution that God is working in this world. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you so much that we can come to you with, with a boldness that is unheard of before Jesus, with a boldness that is because of what he has done for us on the cross and because he rose again from the dead and he is our advocate. So thank you for the courage to come before you with all that we have in our hearts, our, our hurts and our worries, our shame, also the times that we experience success and praise, we bring it all to you. But Father, we thank you so much that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And as we pray through this prayer together, we pray that your name might be glorified, that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.